0: Hello. Welcome to New Books Network. Uh, This is Literary Study Podcast, and I'm Natalia, one of the hosts on the channel. And uh, today I will be speaking with Jacob Emery, and we will be discussing his um, recent book, Alternative Kinships, Economy, and Family in Russian Modernism. Uh, Hello, Jacob.
1: Hello, Natalia.
0: Thank you so much for joining me today. That's my pleasure. Mm -hmm. So before we start talking about your recent publication, do you mind uh, telling us a little bit about your professional background?
1: Sure. Uh, well, I was born in Moscow, uh, by which I mean Moscow, Idaho, the small yeah. town in the Idaho Panhandle, mm-hmm. uh, and my interest in Russian literature specifically uh, probably came through a, an, an early teen infatuation with dostoevsky mm-hmm. and I was lucky enough to be um, to be enrolled in a Russian class in in Seattle when I was fourteen years old. Uh, right at the time that the Soviet Union was collapsing mm-hmm. and was an exchange student, actually, to Tashkent in Uzbekistan and spent several months there mm-hmm. um, and, and came back uh, utterly unaware of the historical magnitude of uh, what I had just witnessed mm-hmm. and actually um, slipped under the influence of Kafka, began taking German for a while, went back into into Russian when I started college and um, and then uh, kept going with that.
0: Mm-hmm. all the way through
1: mm-hmm. to uh, college at the University of Iowa and then uh, graduate school at Harvard University.
0: Mm-hmm. And what's your research interest at this point?
1: My research interest mm-hmm. at this point? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I i am phenomenally uh, curious and dilettante-ish. And mm-hmm. I, I've, uh, I've written on everything from aerial photography to mm-hmm. medieval coins. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But at the moment, I'm primarily engaged in a, a book-length project on the history of uh, mechanical reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm talking about uh, the the rash of mm-hmm. uh, technologies that appeared in the late 18th century, mm-hmm. um, lithography, innovations in printing technology, um, innovations in the reproduction of sculptures, mm-hmm. and ways in which um, this uh, efflorescence mm-hmm. of uh, reproduced artwork mm-hmm. began to to change the way that people approached aesthetics in ways that actually prefigure and form a kind of background Mm -hmm. for the ways in which we imagine our relationship to artistic objects changing right now with the digital revolution, Mm -hmm. when music and books and everything else are available in thousands of downloadable copies online. So it
0: sounds like your research interest uh, lies in some multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary area.
1: That's a fair thing to say. Yeah,
0: yeah and uh, that's how your recent publication sounds as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, it sounds <laughs> very, very complicated. Alternative kinships, economy and family in Russian modernism, and it encompasses at least three or four areas. We have kinships, alternative kinships, and we have economy and family, <laughs> and we have Russian modernism as well. <laughs> Would you tell us a little bit about how this uh, project developed?
1: Um, It developed out of some papers that I wrote early Mm -hmm. on in my graduate career, a couple Mm -hmm. of seminar papers, um, some of which eventually made their way in some form into the book, some of which ended up in the dust heap of history or Mm -hmm. as independent articles. Um, The primary kernel of it is that I became fascinated with these scenes in which a character in a novel looks into a mirror and sees somebody Mm -hmm. else reflected Mm -hmm. there, which is an Mm -hmm. incredibly common device. And you Mm -hmm. encounter it in Mm -hmm. pop literature, you encounter it in Greek literature, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of an omnipresent device. And I became curious about it first as um, a kind of image of what fiction does, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, we think of the literary work as a kind of mirror that reflects the world to us. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also has that power to show us something that, Uh, is an object of fantasy. Um, It it opens up a door to another world for us. And to me, this image of the mirror that reflects back another image, Mm -hmm. a novel image, um, Mm -hmm. is emblematic of that dual role of fiction, both to show us what the world is, Mm -hmm. and also to show us an opening onto something else.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, your research consists of uh, four parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, um, what what uh, material did you use for for this for this research? What books did you choose to analyze?
1: Um, most of the space is devoted to a book by Andrei Biele that was mm-hmm. published almost exactly one hundred years ago, called Petersburg, uh, which occupies roughly the same position in Russian literature that James Joyce's Ulysses occupies mm-hmm. in uh, English language literature. Mm-hmm. It's a word-drunk novel obsessed with its own um, ability to imagine crazy things Mm -hmm. and bring them forth in complications Mm -hmm. to the reader. And it has a very simple plot. Um, There's a a young man whose father is a conservative senator, and he's fallen in with a revolutionary group that um, convinces him to plant a bomb in his father's study and Mm -hmm. blow him up. Uh, ultimately, he mm-hmm. decides not to do it and throws the bomb into the river, uh, b- but the plot is um, almost indecipherable under this amazing succession of hallucinatory images and extreme emotional states.
0: Mm-hmm. There are also some uh, novels from American literature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I became fascinated by, um, by parallels, particularly between the uh, early Soviet experiment, the mm-hmm. Russian Revolution, and the way in which it attempted to transform society. Mm-hmm and the uh, the American experiment, mm-hmm. the American Revolution. Um, and there were a great number of parallels in, for instance, uh, efforts to redefine family structure in mm-hmm. ways that would make an aristocratic class impossible mm-hmm. in both countries.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about when um, uh, I was reading your uh, book. Um, the books that you include into this research seem at least at first glance, quite different. Uh, And there is um, uh, A House of Seven Gables, Mm -hmm. and you uh, mentioned some Gothic writing or Gothic Mm -hmm. literature. So um, I would like to uh, speak a little bit about those uh, crossing points Mm -hmm. between these seemingly different books.
1: Yeah, there's more Hawthorne from American Mm -hmm. literature than Mm -hmm. anything else, in part because he's the author from... Uh, world literature who probably more than anybody obsessively returns Mm -hmm. to this image of the false mirror throughout Mm -hmm. his Mm -hmm. career. And it's always associated with some kind of incestuous inheritance. Mm -hmm. It's a, there's a, uh, some kind of treasure which is kept close inside the family and this Gothic house where the treasure is held becomes a place of evil, which, um, is somehow burst open by the intervention of the mirror. Mm -hmm. And uh, as soon as people um, are able to see fantastic shapes in the mirrors, Mm -hmm. instead of just seeing themselves and their family members reflected back and forth, then uh, the, the treasure is allowed to, Leave the house and be dispersed into the wilds of America.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, it looks like there are those uh, mirror images in uh, Soviet literature and in American literature mm-hmm. of some distant past. Um, what messages do they deliver? Are they the same, or they somehow um, change and they deliver some different meanings? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, they are. They are quite parallel. Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, the the image of the of the mirror that reflects another person Mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. a a tremendously common one throughout Mm -hmm. the history of world literature. Um, But in almost every case, uh, what is reflected there is um, a son will see his father in the mirror Mm -hmm. or a father will see his son in the mirror. So it's actually um, reflecting the family relationships that prevail in the real world. And especially those connections Mm -hmm. along which aristocratic lines are perpetuated and uh, along which inheritance is passed down from one generation to the next. Mm -hmm. And in the early Soviet period, when you have a programmatic effort to destroy the family, which uh, Karl Marx called the germ cell of every form (laughs) of exploitation that would develop Mm -hmm. later on in society, um, you start to have some experimentation with different kinds of identifications that would lead to other ways of sharing wealth. Mm -hmm. And so you start to see, uh, you start to see a lot more mothers in mirrors. Mm -hmm. You start to see, um, a lot more, uh, like images of, uh, of, of large groups of people, Mm -hmm. communal relationships Mm -hmm. that are reflected in, Mm -hmm. in mirrors. Mm -hmm. And similarly, when you turn to, um, the works of Nathaniel Hawthorne, Mm -hmm. who is very, very conscious of this, um, Jeffersonian effort to do away with aristocratic inheritance in favor of a kind of egalitarian and meritocratic uh, American utopia, then um, this oppressive image of the the father and son relationship Mm -hmm. that appears in the mirror um, becomes replaced by uh, images of friendship, Mm -hmm. um, images of some kind of spiritual recognition Mm -hmm. rather than familial recognition across the mirror. Mm
0: -hmm. And uh, you also put uh, this discussion of uh, the family as a concept uh, into some uh, economic systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are some discussions of uh, family and economy. So what kind of uh, um, story does this kind of uh, um, relationship narrate?
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The Relationship between family and economy Mm -hmm. uh, is kind of as old as the concepts themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, the, the Greek word, oikos, from which our word economy is derived originally means household Mm -hmm. and the original science of economy is just the science of division of Mm -hmm. labor within Mm -hmm. the family Mm -hmm. and distributing resources Mm -hmm. amongst the family. Um, And anthropologists have long been aware that, um, family relationships are, uh, Typically, those which articulate uh, relationships of inherited caste, mm-hmm. um, division of labor between men and women, between the young and the old. So, I mean, Marx isn't uh, isn't completely off when he says that you know the, the the germs of many of our basic economic concepts come from family structure. Mm-hmm. Um, when you start to look at the kinds of stories that are told, uh, there are a set of traditional stories. Um, that I guess something like fairy tales would be emblematic of them. There's this Mm -hmm. notion that, uh, you know, the fathers and sons are the Mm -hmm. same people and will always have the same rank. And if we become Kings, it is because uh, we really were the sons of Kings all along, even Mm -hmm. though we were raised by shepherds or whatever. Uh, When you get into um, some of these experiments with revolution, with the American or the Russian revolution then um, you also get experiments with new kinds of narratives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Petersburg is not um, a story which is governed by uh, the neat succession of one generation Mm -hmm. for another. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a novel that attempts to experiment with um, wild associative links between Mm -hmm. chapters and scenes. Mm -hmm. And, um, And one of the ways that this a uh, fragmented narrative conception, as illustrated, is through the um, the, uh, the, the chopping up of people into different. Uh, mirror scenes.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, would you tell us a little bit more about this uh, novel, Petersburg? Uh, in your book, you write, "The pinnacle of Russian avant-garde prose. Petersburg is grounded in tropes of parent-child identity that open the perceived transmission of identity across generations onto theoretical issues of rhetoric exchange and the creative imagination." Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. So that, that sentence really sums it all up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can I can unpack yeah, every, sure. every yeah. point mm-hmm. of that. Um, mm-hmm. Petersburg is a book with um statements of parent-child identity on every single level of the narrative. It's a book in which uh you encounter statements like um parent and child are one flesh and to be frightened of one's own flesh is shameful. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a book in which um, puns saturate the novel and this illegitimate relationship between the meanings of distinct words is very closely associated with the uh, relationship between illegitimate siblings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a book which uh, has a strong strain of, Religious mysticism, and in particular, um, aspirations towards some kind of universal family of God, in which everybody will uh, everybody will be reunited mm-hmm. um, and speak a single magical language and be united in a single magical family. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the the effort to create this mystical unity through magical acts of language mm-hmm. and their inevitable failure that. Um, that that really drive the novel.
0: Mm-hmm. So the novel was written in 1916, mm-hmm. uh, and it's a very peculiar period, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, it, not only in terms of literature, but in terms of um, culture in general and politics and history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in what way does this book respond to those changes?
1: Well, the the book's history is actually a little more interesting even than that, Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. it uh, was printed in several major editions, which are radically different from one another. Hmm. The first one, as you say, came out in 1916. Mm -hmm. That is just before the Russian Revolution. And the last edition that Bailey wrote uh, came out in 1922. So mm-hmm. just after the Russian revolution and after the war communist period.
0: So Bailey um, edited his own version or he rewrote his he own version? He did, and
1: they're tremendously different from one another. Wait, mm-hmm, so just to, mm-hmm. just to name one example, mm-hmm. the second edition that I mentioned, the 1922 one, uh, is about 150 pages shorter mm-hmm. than the first one. mm
0: mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, the general like uh, message was also different?
1: Um, the message is more or less the same,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, although there are a number of passages that deal specifically with revolution mm-hmm. that are tweaked mm-hmm, in order mm-hmm. to make them more historically specific to the events of the Russian Revolution. So
0: why do you think he shortened his uh, novel considerably? Um, it's a novel
1: that's tremendously delirious and repetitive and wordy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, he loves repeating himself. Um, the narrator is ostentatiously incompetent and mm-hmm. sometimes will run out of words and stop and fumble for half a mm-hmm. page before picking up the thread of the story again. Um, to give one example, uh, Bielie is fond of writing things like um, he poured himself into the space, that is to say, the room, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he will often provide uh, like two synonymous versions of the same sequence of events. Mm-hmm. And uh, he cut a lot of that out in the second edition. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a number of descriptive passages which are trimmed down. Mm-hmm. Um, it's perhaps it's perhaps a better and more readable novel mm-hmm. in the in the second mm-hmm. edition uh even though the the first one contains mm-hmm. just an abundance mm-hmm. of more material to work with
0: do you think that it was somehow connected um as well with his desire to reach more readers with a shortened version of his novel
1: i cannot imagine mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. um that Bieli was directly concerned <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> with mm-hmm. his with his with his readership yes. mm-hmm. um i think it's possible that uh that he that he desired in um his messianic associations with the early utopian hopes of communism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to um to reach a larger audience mm-hmm. um out of a, a desire to participate in those historical events mm-hmm. i don't th- think that he had much concern for um, for like readers or mm-hmm. or, or being understood mm-hmm. per se, mm-hmm. but he he did want to be involved. He wanted mm-hmm. to be in the mm-hmm. middle of things.
0: So it it probably does um, uh, speak a lot about uh, or tells a lot about uh, um, Russian modernism in general. That is a trend.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. and and he he was um, he was somebody who who began in the late eighteen hundreds mm-hmm. with some with some experimental works, mm-hmm. and then he continued writing. Um, you know, all, all the way through the, through the early Soviet period. Mm-hmm. So, so he does track the entire trajectory mm-hmm. of, of Russian modernism and mm-hmm. is, uh, is one of its most radical exemplars.
0: Mm-hmm. Why was this uh, issue about family relationships so uh, popular under the Soviet Union?
1: Well, as I said, mm-hmm. um, the, the Soviets were very aware that the aristocratic situation of czarism was one that perpetuated social classes. Mm-hmm. Um, the aristocracy is an inherited caste. The uh, the bourgeois family is one in which um, wealth is passed from you know one generation to the next, and and often you know, occupations mm-hmm. and social capital mm-hmm. are passed from one generation to the next. And they realized that if they were to build a radically different and utopian society, they would need to begin by redefining the family Mm -hmm. so that people's primary allegiances and the ways in which they shared their resources didn't take place um, in these close knit and isolated family units, but would be spread out communally through the entirety of society. Mm -hmm. So in the 1920s, you have any number of radical proposals to do away with the family. This was seen as inevitable. There were just questions about how exactly it was to be done. And the uh, millions of orphans that were created over the course of the Russian Civil War became a kind of laboratory for many of these experiments. Mm -hmm. There were vast orphanages um, throughout the Soviet Union, um, some of them horrific, some of them uh, some of them actually quite quite interesting and apparently good for the children who lived in them. Mm-hmm. Um, and these were all small laboratories uh, that, that were designed to experiment with uh, raising up children outside of the family household um, so that they would grow up to be these new Soviet human beings who would have a perfectly, communal consciousness rather than a bourgeois one.
0: Yeah you also mentioned a milk kinship mm-hmm. in terms of family experiments or family developments.
1: Yeah I'm glad you brought that mm-hmm. up because it's one of the it's one of the more interesting mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. of the experiments. Um, mm-hmm. This was a time in which anything was seen to be possible mm-hmm. and whatever crackpot idea somebody had, uh, the government would give them some small amount of money in order to in order to pursue it. Um, and one of the more interesting of these experiments was a program that was instituted according to which every nursing mother mm-hmm. would uh, donate some of her milk into a common fund mm. where it would be mixed together and pasteurized and then redistributed to the children in the orphanages Mm -hmm. who would be drinking the milk of a single communal mother, Russia, right? Every woman in Russia (laughs) is donating some, some portion of milk to this fund. Mm -hmm. And the consequences of this are actually extremely profound. When we look at, um, systems of kinship in Russian peasant society, the vast majority of Russians at the time are illiterate peasants and they, and they come from a, from a society in which, um, milk kinship counts as real kinship. So if a, if a man and a woman have been nursed by the same woman, for instance, even if they're not brother and sister, they can't marry one another. That would be considered to be incest. And as in many societies, um, most notably Islamic societies, milk kinship forms a way of creating uh, tight bonds between families. So a peasant woman would share one another's children and nurse one another's children, and, uh, and then those children would be considered siblings to one another, and they would grow up together, support one another, share resources together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this becomes a way of uh, actually creating a vast community of siblings, mm-hmm. according to traditional Russian conceptions mm-hmm. of kinship.
0: Mm-hmm. And did that experiment last long? Um, Yes and no, it's,
1: uh, it's utopian aspirations mm-hmm. did not last mm-hmm. long that mm-hmm. they were, they were gone by the end of the twenties. The turn to Stalinism was also a turn towards um, extremely conservative notions mm-hmm. of gender roles, family structure, everything else. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the milk banks that were established mm-hmm. and, um, and the, uh, and the possibility for a woman who had difficulty nursing to access um, a state-funded communal source mm-hmm. of milk that uh, continued all the way through the Soviet mm-hmm. Union.
0: Uh, under the Soviet Union, this reconsideration of family relationships uh, also influenced the reconsideration of sexual relationships mm-hmm. as well.
1: Yeah, with something like with something like, mm-hmm. um, like milk kinship, it's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's impossible to talk about with all without also thinking about uh, the efforts on the part of the Soviet. Um, idealists to do away with traditional gender roles as right. well.
0: And everybody was considered to be sisters and brothers.
1: Everybody was mm-hmm. sisters and brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have a, a number of thinkers who, uh, who who are trying to do away with the very concepts of masculinity and mm-hmm. femininity. So as everybody becomes siblings, um then uh you're also doing away with the sexual division mm-hmm. of labor. Everybody's mm-hmm. a factory worker in the service of the state. Um when someone uh, as Alexandra Kalantai, who is one of the great feminist thinkers of the early Soviet period, um as, as she put it, uh a, a pregnant woman or a nursing mother is uh is just a part of the factory who's producing more labor for the state. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, th- there's also a kind of unsettling aspect to this, mm-hmm. um, as, as has been noted by a number of people beyond myself, uh, there, there emerges a kind of fantasy of a world that simply doesn't have any woman mm-hmm. in it. And, um, everything is sort of ma- as, as masculinized and women have been written out of agency and written out of existence. Mm-hmm. And that's something we see in, in some of the literature I analyze.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, um, there is also a very close analysis of um, um, uh, um, another book, uh, Alisha's Envy, uh, mm-hmm. or novel, a novella. novella yeah, so it's Envy. about 100 pages. Yeah. It's right in that
1: sort of uh, problematic borderland between novellas <laughs> and novels.
0: But it goes under mm-hmm. the category of the uh, extinction of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on um, um, page um, uh, 111, um, You state, although capitalism was more resilient than Engels uh, expected, the Soviet Union in its first and most radically utopian years represents a unique attempt to establish a society in which reproduction of labor would take place outside the horizon of the family. Mm -hmm. The state aimed to accomplish this, especially by appropriating the function of providing food to children. Mm -hmm. And uh, this book also um, goes under that notion of milk kinship.
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the the book um, takes as its crux the conflict between uh, two family groupings, one of which is associated with a nostalgic notion of the bourgeois family and the private kitchen in which mothers prepare food for their children Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. sort of like the primal milk of the mother flowing into the mouth of the child. Mm -hmm. Then there's a kind of sacred and naturalized bond between mm-hmm. people that's formed within these private households. And on the other hand, you have this gigantic factory kitchen, which mm-hmm. is going to uh, just pour out rivers of milk into the waiting mouths of the Soviet mm-hmm. populace. Um, and that's associated with a very different and very industrialized um, idea of the kitchen mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As, as the center of household life. Mm-hmm. And it's directly reflecting Efforts uh, on on the part of Soviet bureaucrats and directives put out by Lenin himself um, that, uh, that that relocate the feeding of children from the private breast mm-hmm. into into public spaces.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, how would you describe that Russian modernist message, uh, considering this? Um, modifications of family relationships, which somehow include uh, economy and probably politics as well. Mm -hmm. mm
1: -hmm. By the time that you're getting into the 1920s, the message becomes something like, uh, in the modern world, absolutely anything is possible. Mm -hmm. We have electric Mm -hmm. lights, we no Mm -hmm. longer need the Mm -hmm. sun, right? Mm -hmm. We can do it all ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the same way, We have all these new genetic technologies Mm -hmm. and these new industrialized ways of raising children and providing food to them. We no longer need this primitive natural way of making and raising children (laughs) when we can do it all scientifically Mm -hmm. and on a vast scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the imagination is allowed to just run riot in the possibilities. If you read the end of Trotsky's literature and a revolution, it ends with this three page long hymn to the, the future of biological possibilities mm-hmm. of the human race, mm-hmm. which will no longer bow before the blind chance of sexual heredity says mm-hmm. Trotsky, but will cast off the shackles of nature and genetics. And, uh, we will breed ourselves to live like dolphins in the bottom of the sea and to shoot ourselves into outer space and live in the vacuum. <laughs> we will, uh, be able to design ourselves into superhumans who will surpass the heights of the Shakespeare's and Goethe's of the past.
0: Mm -hmm. And um, how does this trend respond to other modernisms in the West, let's Uh, say?
1: It's it's interesting to look at the comparisons because Mm -hmm. you see a number of the same ideas in a kind of inchoate form in some of the Western modernisms. Mm -hmm. So if you you look to uh, uh, Wyndham Lewis in... England, let's say, um, or uh, or or the or some of the French thinkers, um, then you you see some of the same fascination with uh, a technological world that will move beyond the apparent necessity of the family mm-hmm. into some new mm-hmm. kind of organization. The real difference is that in Russia, mm-hmm. in the nineteen twenties, the traditional state and the traditional family actually had been shattered by the mm-hmm. Russian revolution mm-hmm. and anything really did seem possible. And a number of these modern, of these modernist and avant-garde, mm-hmm. uh, utopian authors were given prominent positions in the Soviet leadership. Mm-hmm. So they were actually attempting to introduce as social policy, a number of the things which remained far out poetic ideas in the West. In that respect, the Russian situation has a little bit more in common mm-hmm. with something like uh, some of the some of the literature around the American Revolution mm-hmm. in in the in the seventeen seventies, mm-hmm. or with some of the uh, some of the literature immediately after the French Revolution in mm-hmm. seventeen eighty nine. Um which also included you know forms of milk kinship
0: mm-hmm. so uh, but um uh, in any way uh, family relationships uh, somehow define the individual as well, mm-hmm. so how would you describe the image of the individual in russian modernism
1: um it's a It's a difficult and contradictory mm-hmm. image because mm-hmm. on the one hand, there's something very heroic in Russian modernism mm-hmm. about this idea of the you know, the 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 great, the great poet or the visionary Mm -hmm. or the, the genius that will be created by these new forms of, um, of, of, of rearing children. Uh, but there's also something obviously very communal about it. And, um, and there's a, a sense that to be too much of an individual is to disrupt the, Mm -hmm. um, the smooth functioning of the socialist organism. And you can really see a battle between um, the the individualistic and the communalistic tendencies
0: Mm -hmm.
1: in Russian modernism. And I I don't think that it's fully resolved by any of these books. It it just plays into their tragic climaxes.
0: What would be that archetypal (laughs) image of a Russian modernist? Mm, I would think
1: of someone Mm -hmm. like uh, Vladimir Mayakovsky. Mm -hmm. uh,
0: How so? (laughs) who,
1: Who... who wrote? Who, who was? Who ended up uh, writing a great deal of poetic propaganda mm-hmm. for the for the Soviet state and being a very fervent supporter of the Soviet project? It's most popular poet mm-hmm. and um, and uh, a tremendous popular celebrity, um, but he's also somebody who who wrote poems with titles like. A Few Words About Myself, I'm Young, Handsome, <laughs> 22 Years Old, uh, and other poems like Vladimir Mayakovsky, A Tragedy, mm-hmm. in which he, he represents himself over, yeah. over 60 pages as mm-hmm. the, the epic hero of, of, a, of a great psychological narrative.
0: How was this um, uh, movement, if we can use that word, or this topic of uh, uh, families uh, further developed under the Soviet Union, if there was any further development for this topic?
1: It's yeah. a great mm-hmm. question. Um, my my sense is that uh, by the time you get into the 1930s, the utopian mm-hmm. promise of family, uh, of, of, of shaking up and reconstituting family structure has more or less passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, so you continue to get a number of scenes in 20th century Russian literature. Uh, of the later period, um, you continue to get a number of scenes in which People look into mirrors and they see their Mm -hmm. they see their fathers there, but they no longer carry with them the same sense of imaginative possibility that existed in the 1920s. They are much more in line with uh, the similar kinds of scenes that you would find in Western literature and Western movies.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Does this topic have any kind of uh, rudiments in Russian postmodernism?
1: Does it have rudiments in, mm-hmm. in Russian postmodernism? Yeah. Uh, I can certainly think of some scenes okay. in which, mm-hmm. in which these, uh, in which these take place. Mm-hmm. Um, I suppose, uh, the contemporary author that I'd point mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. more than anyone would be, would be Vladimir Sorokin, mm-hmm. who, uh, who has such scenes in some of his novels. Um, he is quite interested in the Soviet experiment. actually has a number of, uh, of, of, of books, which, um, which involved time travel back to the Soviet period. And he's tremendously fascinated with clones and um, assemblages of, uh, of, of individuals who are genetically identical to one Mm -hmm. another. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes uh, in visions of um, futuristic uh, labor organization. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes in some of his books, uh, he will have, the clones of opera composers or famous writers who were, you know, compelled to to produce their works over again in some kind of parodic version. Mm-hmm. So his, um, I think, his historical thinking, his his return to um, the 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 Soviet period and particularly the early Soviet period um, as a way of like, rehistoricizing the the contemporary moment in Russian mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. Um, it definitely carries with it mm-hmm. a kind of fascination with genetic possibilities mm-hmm. and the new political and economic possibilities that would be generated by some kind of you know, more or less conscious and technologically mediated control over the genetic resources of human beings.
0: Mm-hmm. In your research, you also uh, touch upon some issues of uh, memory. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, there, are some, um, there is some analysis of hereditary hereditary memory, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's also somehow connected with that topic about families and mm-hmm. uh, um, economy as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Hereditary memory is a doctrine mm-hmm. uh, that was held as unshakable science for much of the 19th century in mm-hmm. particular and continued to be believed by, by many scientists um, up until mm-hmm. uh, the uh, around the, the 1920s, and it held that um, the evolutionary process whereby species develop um, can also be traced into the relationship between individuals, mm-hmm. and that the uh, experiences and memories of our ancestors are somehow imprinted genetically into us. Mm-hmm. Um, it was It was held to explain a number of things um, in in the in the late nineteenth century um, before the science of genetics was uh, was was more firmly developed and it continued to be held by uh, primarily eugenicists uh, who looked to hereditary memory as a way of um, hypothesizing uh, supposedly biological distinctions between races. Um, It was held by a number of uh, psychoanalysts Mm -hmm. who wanted to, um, Freud, for instance, Mm -hmm. who wanted to suppose that um, there was some kind of deep traumatic structure to human consciousness, which everybody shared and which would uh, be present in and shape the personality. um, Even if the, Particular experiences, which Freud took to shape the personality, Mm -hmm. didn't appear in the history of the individual. And then, of course, um, it was uh, it was doctrine in the um, beginning with the in the 1930s in the Soviet Union, because um, uh, it it was it was very attractive to the Soviet idea of consciousness gaining control over matter Mm -hmm. to think that by consciously um, providing experiences to human beings or other organisms, those uh, the fruits of those experiences would then be kind of hardwired into the human material and um, and inherited generation after generation. Mm-hmm. The the most famous name here is probably Lysenko, the the uh, the geneticist who was you know responsible for famines and the death mm-hmm. of millions of people mm-hmm. um, because he believed that uh that you could just teach wheat to grow at a different time <laughs> of the year <laughs> than, uh, than it had traditionally and uh if you just planted it in the winter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. then um you know the, the few that survived would carry with them this memory of survival mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they would they would pass it on mm-hmm. to uh to future generations of wheat mm-hmm. um so a, a tremendous amount mm-hmm. of, uh, of 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 death and famine um mm-hmm. came out of some of these applications?
0: I I would assume that hereditary memory would be controversial to some extent in the Soviet Union because it would uh, somehow include the memory of the past Mm -hmm. that at some point was probably quite um, not according to the Soviet ideology. Mm-hmm. How was this aspect handled uh, um, under the Soviet Union and in the Soviet literature as well? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. I suppose that I should make clear that hereditary memory mm-hmm. per se mm-hmm. um, falls out of favor mm-hmm. uh, with, the, with the official Soviet government. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something that, for example, Andrei Gili mm-hmm. very fervently believed in, mm-hmm. but he came to it largely by way of his religious mysticism um hereditary memory was an important factor in occult, mm-hmm. uh, in occult beliefs at the time. And Andre Bailey was a was an anthroposophist. Um, so so Rudolf Steiner's doctrines that uh the the ancestral memories of our earliest forebears continue to live on in us is something that he was very attracted mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Um when you get into the Soviet period, mm-hmm. there are some there are some elements of it uh that you can see as cognate with uh, the theories of genetics that became popular in the Soviet Union, um, but I would say that that the element in it that was attractive to the Soviet leadership was um, was specifically the element that has to do with uh, not the past continuing to right. live in the present day against our wishes but with the idea that we could make a conscious intervention right now and reshape the material mm-hmm, of the human reshape. being.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to construct what we want to construct. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And your research also offers um, a close, disca- close discussion of metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so would you tell us a little bit about your understanding of and metaphor and those uh, discussions that you would like to respond to or to initiate? Sure. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so metaphor Uh, the the loose definition that I use of metaphor in the book Mm -hmm. is just calling something, something else. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, a is B Achilles is a lion. uh, The the boat is a swan. um, And uh, this is used by a number of literary theorists as a way of explaining why fiction can't tell us anything that can be proven to be false, right? Like a novel is a bunch of made up things, But when we read something in a fantasy novel, uh, there's, there's, it it, it doesn't make sense for us to say, well, that isn't true because it is true within the horizon of the novel, right? Um, if someone in a novel says, uh, black is white or someone in a, in a novel says, um, uh, you're related to the woman who nursed you, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. whether or not she's genetically related to you, then, um, you have to accept that at face value because it's true in the world of the novel. And this happens whenever we read fantasy um, or indeed any work of fiction to some degree. Um, And what I point out is that uh, metaphor is also an important function for generating identities within social life. Mm -hmm. And this happens particularly in uh, the relationships between parents and children, mm-hmm. people often feel that um, that they don't know who they are unless they know something about where they come from or their forebears. And uh, research into people's um, attitudes towards genealogy or the efforts of adopted children to mm-hmm. discover their biological parents, even if they don't expect to have a relationship with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it suggests that uh, we're accustomed to thinking of our own identities as being constituted by some kind of metaphorical identification with our parents. Mm-hmm. So, when you're talking about um, breaking up the family structure the way that you are in the 1920s, you're really talking about a way of finding new metaphors mm-hmm. for people to define themselves as individuals and in relationship to one another. And in these mirror scenes in Alesha, for instance, mm-hmm. Then um, you get an image of metaphor. You, you look into the mirror and you see somebody else there. Okay. What you're seeing is this potential metaphorical identification with mm-hmm. somebody else. Mm-hmm. And traditionally that's with your father, but what if you saw your mother there instead? Mm-hmm. Right? What if you saw a friend there instead? Mm-hmm. What if mm-hmm. you saw, right? The, 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 the possibilities become limitless and it lays bare um, the metaphorical operations at work in. Constructing social relationships and our sense of ourselves as individuals.
0: Mm-hmm. So, um, would it be correct to say that metaphors um, create identities, and identities create metaphors as well? And there is some overlapping there.
1: Absolutely. In fact, it's a it's a very circular relationship. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we create an identity through a metaphor, and then as we become accustomed to operating with that identity then um, it, it turns back upon itself in a circular relationship. and this is actually the way that anthropologists will speak of mm-hmm. um, will speak of kinship. Uh, the, uh, an influential anthropologist named named Schneider described um, kinship as being both material and metaphorical at the same time. Um, so who are the people you're related to? Well it's your family, who's your family uh, Well it's the people that you, care for that you, that you, that you cook for, that you listen to, um, that you, that you share experiences with, um, these are expressions of affection Mm -hmm. and they, uh, and they, and they can symbolize the, the family relationship that you, that you feel for these people, but they're also constitutive of the family relationship. Who's your family? Well, Mm -hmm. it's the people that you cook for, (laughs) right? So, so, um, the two really do, mutually constitute one another in the way that you've described
0: mm-hmm. and metaphors probably also um, it creates some new space I'm particularly fascinated by uh, the f- uh, closing um, uh, phrase in your in your book um, metaphor orients us onto the blind spot that triangulates the poetic imagination and economic life
1: <laughs> yeah um, metaphor is something that in the literal sense is not true. Mm-hmm. It takes two things that aren't the same thing, and we pretend that they are the same mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. We do this in our social life, and we do it whenever we practice mm-hmm. fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're usually not conscious of the way in which we do it, right? Um, something that the Soviet Union did mm-hmm. is it said, things don't have to be this way. They could be something totally different. What happens if we uh, create an identification between you know, uh nursing mothers and children (laughs) instead of between uh, biological mothers and children. What if we create relationships between um, two people who have shared a blood transfusion instead of between, you know, two siblings who have been uh, born from the same mother. Um, And by engaging in these creative metaphors, then we're able, I think, to um, recognize how our imagination participates in the social structures that we take for granted.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you so much, Jacob, for this um, um, fascinating conversation. And uh, what are you working on right now? What's your current project?
1: Uh, at the moment, I'm working on a book-length project mm-hmm. that traces the history of technologies of reproducing artworks. Mm-hmm. So, for example, lithography, or molding plaster casts of sculptures, mm-hmm. these technologies became extremely widespread and popular in the late 1700s. Mm-hmm. Um, James Watt, the inventor of the of the steam engine, was also um, uh, uh, the the inventor of new processes of of creating sculptures, for instance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the the modern world as we know it um, has has grown in tandem with these technologies for reproducing artworks. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the present moment, as we become very, very conscious of our ability to uh, send out thousands of copies of a single song or a single novel with an email, Mm -hmm. or um, even with genetic technologies like cloning of thinking of ourselves as assemblages of information that can be reproduced over and over again. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. I want to look back to this origin of, uh, of, of, modernity and technological reproduction
0: and and look at
1: the continuities between them.
0: Another way to look at uh, kinship relationships as well.
1: Yeah, it's definitely Mm -hmm. uh, an outgrowth of of the book that I've Mm -hmm. just talked about today.
0: Yeah, well, thank you so much and uh, good luck on your project. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure.